Hello. This is episode 66 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. And today we have a fan favorite returning guest to the Blood and Rain podcast. Uh, he goes by the moniker Totally Not Anacreon because he is totally not Anacreon. Um, he's become many people's favorite political and cultural writer on the realm of Instagram, which is typically not the place for political discourse. So it's always a breath of fresh air seeing his takes on things ranging from geopolitics to cultural warfare to domestic policy, so on and so forth. Thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Thanks for coming back. It's, it's really a pleasure to be back. <laughs> We're so back. Um, <laughs> So bad. Um, you know, as we've been kind of trading notes with like a lot of our mutual friends, like 2022 was a bit of a whirlwind, and a lot of us kind of like took a step back from writing and creating for a bit. And mm-hmm. um, I think, especially you know, for myself, for Zenovial, for Letters from the Ruins, uh, it was more of like a an internal sort of reading, taking stock kind of a year. And now it appears that we're all kind of back into the content grind properly. So what was uh, 2022 like for you in terms of sort of um, sharpening the saw on your sort of praxis of analysis and your personal education? Yeah, well, I I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head when he said it was a bit of a whirlwind year. Glad that was a universal theme, not something I was going through alone. But yeah, like you said, um, 2022, since we all sort of, you know, started out just sort of at least for me personally, I was just sort of, you know, flinging things around, um, basically just experimenting with Anacreon at the, at the outset of it. And once I started to, you know, build up a a smaller following, it was, um, it was sort of a a point of reckoning where I wanted to decide how I wanted to, to go forward with it. So yeah, like you said, a lot of, uh, sharpening the the saw, I'm actually moving over to Substack now, talked about it a little before, shameless self plug, uh, Feel free to sign up. We've put out a couple long-form essays. Uh, it's a really great platform for that. So yeah, um, now that we have you know somewhat of a more comprehensive plan going forward with Anacreon, I'm really excited for for what the future holds. Um, I'm definitely going to be trying to expand on a lot of ideas that we had in some of the posts. Um, obviously, it's much smaller. Um, little nuggets of information there, like you said, Instagram is not really the the standard for that. So, looking to expand on some of those ideas, welcoming you know feedback from the community, some sort of way maybe of networking or commenting, building on each other's ideas. But yeah, it's um, hopefully you know 2022 is the year of gearing up, and uh, 2023 will be sort of exploding outwards. I'm excited for it. Awesome, awesome. I'm really glad to hear that. You're on Substack as well. I don't know when I actually got onto Substack. I used it as like somewhat of a newsletter just in the past, um, just via email, not really focusing on the platform itself, but just as an avenue to sort of put out newsletters as to what to expect from Blood and Rain, like across platforms. But uh, I've sort of doubled down on Substack itself because it not only does it send direct to email, but it also has, first of all, it's like a very clean aesthetic that's pleasing to look at, it's quite relaxing. Um, and it's, it is like social media for long form content where I think it is a lot more of a net positive now, because when you and I started writing on Instagram, like in 2020, 
Like the attention span was still, I mean, it's still social media, but it's still a bit longer. Um, right before it became like a TikTok copy pasta, and everyone's <laughs> attention spans were just like greatly reduced. So yeah. people like you and me, Thomas, you know, Nature Chad, um, who were just like posting images, or you were doing more infographics to be fair. But for a lot of us who were posting like images and then having captions that were essay, like very tiny essays, um, it just went completely out the window. No one was reading them anymore. The algorithm wasn't pushing them. You had to have yeah. people who were literally paying you money to like a month, um, like monthly for reels. Um, and everyone's attention span just like completely withered for the most part. Um, mm. So Substack, I feel like is a net positive because since it is rooted in long form content, whether it be essays or podcasts, it is causing people to have their attention spans expanded. Um, so as soon as I realized that, I want to say back in August, um, I just, I, I kind of, I kept putting on stories, like harassing people. Like, yeah, um, this is me harassing everyone to get on such a talk. <laughs> yeah, um, pretty much. And it, and, it, and it seems to be working, which I'm very happy about. Um, mm. So, yeah, what with, with that new platform that you have on Substack and the intention you have to kind of um, expand upon the ideas that you're putting in infographics that like, you and I both have had the sort of uh, affliction of being upset that people want us to distill ideas down to even simpler forms. Um, but now that you have that kind of platform to be a bit more long-winded, um, what, what are you most excited to write about uh, and further dive into in 2023? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I'd, I'd like to say I definitely agree with your um, comments about almost the, the bastardization of, of Instagram. Nowadays, it's like the, um, the reels are now being turned into like half-cut things where it's like the top is a is a family guy clip and the bottom is like somebody cutting soap or like playing a playing an iOS game because apparently we can't even focus on a 30-second reel anymore, uh, which has been certainly concerning to say the least. But um, yeah, no, like you said. Um, Substack sort of scratches this this certain niche. It's almost like uh, getting the paper in the in the digital age. You know, something sent to your inbox. Um, obviously, probably not every morning. I'm not that fast of a writer, but uh, every now and then, you know, uh, you get the time. You sit down and read it. Everyone's always checking their Instagram or their excuse me their email anyways for you know maybe school or maybe work. So that makes it a really convenient platform. So yeah, um, to answer your question, some of the stuff I'm planning on uh, sort of expanding upon more. I've already my two most recent ones were the um, were the were the music industry one as well as um, one about China and how they're sort of going about protecting um, the Belt and Road and their their natural resources. So I'm definitely looking at sort of going into somewhat more of a looking at recent events, like, uh, you know, just sort of taking the news and, and putting a spin on it, analyzing events that are happening. Um, like, I know a lot of what I've done has been pretty abstract, um, sort of just talking on a conceptual level. Now that we have a sort of baseline, I feel like a lot of the people who, who follow Anacreon sort of understand what the, the concepts are about at this point, and so that gives us sort of the opportunity to, to really expand forward and just take those concepts and, and put them into day-to-day -day life. So I'm really excited to do that. I think uh, doing it in sort of conjunction with the news and keeping, still, you know, developing those ideas, but also giving a more real-world spin to it is what I'm looking forward to. 
Yeah, I really, I started actually, I don't think I finished the China piece, I think it was, that, it was in between sets of the gym or something like that, but I was, <laughs> when I saw this far about um, sort of Belt Road Initiative, and I, I like what you're stating in the open question, like, do they have the will and do they have the, the means to kind of have this counter to, like, the global American empire militarily? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of an open question with everyone. And the more the more time passes, it, it looks leaning thankfully towards no, they do not have the will, maybe the means, but I don't think that's really their wheelhouse. Um, quite a few internal problems, um, and they're very much you know more entranced with debt trap diplomacy than anything as a, a national policy. Um, mm. I'm curious because like there were a couple things where like the 68ers was the first post that I read by you that um, it, it kind of caught fire like a bunch of people I was following were sharing it Josh Rainer Goldstein um, my current girlfriend soon to be fiance shared it um, you know, a bunch <laughs> of people were sharing it I was like who is this guy and um, and that was like my first intro to your work um, in terms of um, in terms of art and culture like you've kind of dipped your toe into that what made you want to double down um like in things like the music industry and art and culture like that when it's kind of seems like the main thing has been politics with your writing mm -hmm. yeah no that's, that's a that's a great question um sort of like that sort of comes back to 2022 just in general as a formative year for looking about how to um, expand those ideas outwards um, like we, we talked to, we talked a little bit before that, but I guess we'll just repeat those for the for the larger audience. Um, a lot of a lot of the dissenters on that post, there there weren't too many, of course, but there were you know a couple, as there are on most posts. Uh, we're saying you know basically like stuff along the lines of hey, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is pretty small beans compared to the other stuff you've been discussing. You know, it's just a couple songs that sound manufactured and bland. Like, is that really worth caring so much about and you know maybe they do have a point uh maybe maybe i can get a little overzealous at times but uh i think that it is worth at least arguing that uh if we don't pay attention to the small things then the small things start to add up and um they sort of start to snowball on top of each other and then eventually we'll start wondering how we ended up here what what happened what did we miss so, you know, obviously not up for me to decide, but that's uh, sort of just what I've been bouncing around with in the past uh, in the past year or so. And yeah, so the, um, the standardization of the arts, um, actually, it's sort of interesting that we have this, um, this episode now because uh, I think like one day ago, I follow this account on a Twitter called The Cultural Tutor. I'm not on Twitter much. Maybe I should look at expanding there too, but... Uh, uh, basically made this post about what happened to art from um, sort of the Renaissance up until now um, with more abstract art, of course, taking over in uh, in contemporary scenes. So then there then there is the question of why why is this standardization so palatable? Why is it so appealing to to a liberal society? And I guess you know the standardization is is really what's important there. Um, if you can break something down to its most basic components and then just basically mass produce things from there, I mean, like, you hear the you hear the songs on the radio, you would think that they're all produced by the same person, 
um, all the same artists to some degree because of how sort of standardized they are. And it's sort of a, it's, it's definitely a bit of a worrying trend, um, which is why, you know, I, I called to support your local artists, even though they might be douchebags or you might not like them. <laughs> and I may not even side with those people, but I will tell you, I've gone to some local shows, some, you know, $10 concerts at some local venues. Uh, you know, maybe it's a dive bar, maybe it's like a small little abandoned art studio somewhere. And they're they're often the most fun. You at least feel the most like you're a part of a community as opposed to an individual observing um, this piece of art, which you feel so detached from. So, uh, you know, I would encourage any listeners to, to try it out for themselves at least, you know. Uh, feel free to come back to my Instagram and call me an idiot if you if you disagree afterwards. But uh, yeah, that's uh, sort of what I've been playing around with. Yeah, I mean, it's it's reminiscent of like when we recorded the first time, and um, you kind of like declared yourself to be like a staunch localist, and we kind of. I know you had like a, a pretty 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 epic uh duel with uh with thomas about nationalism um oh, yeah. it's definitely like a classical nationalist versus like a a well-read localist like it was, it was very interesting to to read and watch uh mm-hmm. and i'm not going to say who's like side i agree with the most part because i think you both had um i think you both had merits to your argument like yours more historical and yours more micro to macro and his more in terms of i don't know long-term ethos um oh mm-hmm. uh, i think it was it was a great discourse um you made some great points for sure want to shout yeah. out to you great job there's <laughs> <laughs> definitely respect for the opponent um <laughs> yeah i mean and it's actually something that um that wasn't necessarily a debate that um was created the saxon cross and i were discussing um we were kind of talking about sort of state identity versus versus national identity and trying to compare that to um you know like within sort of European nations, right? Because if you kind of look at a, look at a map of Europe in the 1800s, like Italy was not unified. Um, Germany was not a state yet. So the German peoples were not unified. Austria was still kind of the overlord over like, and maybe Prussia to an extent with like Silesia and Württemberg and Bavaria and all that. Um, and we kind of like try to do an apples apples comparison. It's like, where does the localism end? Where does the nationalism begin? It's probably an open question for America, especially at this point. Um, but it is rem- what you're saying is reminiscent about like the small things adding up, and I think that's people who get too enamored with like elite theory and top-down policy kind of miss this sometimes. Um, like reading reading Gustave Le Bon, he's like someone I always kind of go back to um, in terms of like you can't every time they try to make like a top-down. Um, language, like they try to make Esperanto, it just didn't work. This language mm-hmm. is a collective subconscious. Um, it is, in some ways, it, it's local. Like you'll have local slang. Like, I'm from the Bay Area, and I, I've heard people talk about Bay Area slang, and they'll bring up words that I haven't even heard of them. <laughs> um, so I think um, your assessment of the small things adding up is something that's really important. I think is kind of going overlooked in the discourse of like the reactionary slash post-liberal argument that's kind of going on on Twitter and Substack and Odyssey and places like that. Um, I think people are really enamored with top-down, but not so much bottom-up, which is, maybe it's less less impactful, but it is still a factor. Um, 
And what's interesting what you're saying about things being standardized, like music has gotten only more liberal, but at the same time it's becoming like the exact thing it swore to destroy. Um, <laughs> it's like you'll you'll see people who are like um, sort of like street type dancers who bag on ballet being like the foundation of dance. <laughs> um, people who are like sort of have a chip on their shoulder with classical music um, and the sort of... Uh, basically taking like a foundation of technique that's been developed over hundreds of years and adding to it and having that be the foundation for their art and just kind of this rejection of it. Um, they're now becoming what they swore to destroy and it's standardized. Um, yeah. what, what are the, aside from the standardization or maybe within that, um, what are the things, what are the aspects of the music industry today um, that are sort of most alarming to you, like amongst the standardization? Is it is it more so like an actual infringement of actual sort of individual expression, or is it that there's somewhat of like a degenerate, um, dystopian kind of culture that's developing within music that's eroding kind of the psyche of, of people and, and nation? Mm. Yeah, so definitely, definitely an interesting question. <laughs> a lot to unpack. Uh, definitely worth looking a lot into. Um, I would say if I could sort of isolate one thing, it would be how sort of shut off the industry has become to new ideas or, or dissents even. Um, like, you know, say for example, the, the 1980s. So that was a very lively time for, for music in the United States. Of course, you had like your pop artists, you had rap coming into its own, you had new wave coming in from, from the UK. And even in spite of all of that, there was still a very vibrant uh, punk scene like amongst people who were dissenting on on any side of it, basically, uh, the outsiders, and they were still able to sort of have a platform and get some time on airwaves here and there. Um, like, you know, your Dead Kennedys, your Misfits, your, your Vandals, um, people along the lines of that. But then nowadays, you look at what the punk movement's become, and who's the punk leader in America? Like, Machine Gun Kelly? Like, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's so crazy to think about. And like, like, that is sort of a an idea I might think about expanding upon more in the in the broader sense of things is that there's only so many um, ideas that can really they're really allowed to to function within a within a liberal society. Um, like we say, like with a unifying message, you can really only stray so far from that before you start to threaten the the foundations of it. And so if you're a music executive or you run a, a cable news network or something and you want to sort of still stoke this uh this combative um urge we all seem to have this um tribalistic almost uh feel between like music fans between people aligned with certain political groups what you would want to do is convince people that things that aren't really so far apart are actually very extreme opposites because in doing so, you can convince yourself that this very uh, narrow range of acceptable ideas or forms of music or types of art is actually this very broad thing, encompasses, you know, massive amounts of ideas, because that way you can keep people tribalistic, you can keep people identifying with certain types of music without having to deal with all the nasty side effects of um, what that actually entails, um, to, put it, to put it briefly. Um, so yeah, I would I would I would say that I would say you know, punk music or music that in really any sense challenges the status quo of what's been established by the the pop and the rap scenes doesn't really exist 
at least on the national level. Like, you don't hear people on the air on the airwaves, you know, saying that they that they hate pop music. Even like indie music has indie used to be a term for for artists who are um, unsigned to major labels. It used to be a a badge of honor for for local artists. Like Pixies, for example, started out as an indie band. Nirvana started out as an indie band. But now indie's just been sort of co-opted into a sound, frankly, which we all now associate it with. Um, so that's sort of been concerning. And I guess the question is if we reach an inflection point. Um, I don't know when that'll be, but when people sort of get fed up with uh, with what's currently going on. And I, I do think that that's going to have to start from the bottom up. I think that that's going to start at the local level with local shows, local communities, supporting artists and pushing them up through the ranks like how it used to be yeah i think that's that's a pretty solid breakdown of like what's what's going on and what um what needs to happen um in in terms of sort of revitalizing the actual like expression like the creative expression in um the music industry um something i i, I talked about yesterday when i recorded with uh with Zenobial was um i, I feel like Postmodernism actually has ended. This is something I've thought about for about two years, um, because postmodernism is predicated on just like deconstructionism, and mm. I feel like uh, probably seven years ago was like the last year where deconstructionism was still interesting, and now it's at a point of just insanity, and yep. people are starving for something concrete. They're starving for something that is. Um, that's a first mover that's outward, that is foundational. Um, and I don't know how that's going to happen. I mean, it, it, to take your point about, about indie, indie music, right? Um, it's, it's funny you mention that because I remember when I, I, was writing a, I was writing an ebook last year called The Fall of Testosterone and Hard Rock. And I stopped writing <laughs> it because I, like, I went as far as I could in the origins of rock and roll, and there was so much rooted in Satanism. And I was just like, ah. I, yeah, I, I don't. I don't. And my my whole argument, the the premise of the book was that you can track the decline of rock and roll and the decline of testosterone levels in the West, and it's actually identical. So, like nineteen eighty seven was kind of peak rock and roll. If you look at the charts of who mm -hmm. was top of Motley Crue, uh, a couple of the bands I'm forgetting. I think maybe Guns N' Roses because they were late eighties uh, squad. Yeah, they were still. They they kept going to the nineties. So did ACDC. Yeah, yeah, like, as, as grunge was getting, you know, becoming supreme, there was that kind of, like, last run. Yeah, Van Halen with Sammy Hagar. Um, but that was a lot, that was the peak of, like, rock's popularity. And then testosterone levels started to decline. And you saw the 90s, it was still kind of, like, alive and well. Like, grunge is still very, very heavy. Um, <laughs> Van had an interview about this where he's like, yeah, it smells like Teen Spirit is, um, you know, it's it's super heavy, but the reason it's it can be... Um, accepted that way is how melodic it is. Um, mm. When I tried learning guitar in high school, I wanted to learn all apologies, but my hands were too big for my guitar. <laughs> um, but he was like, yeah, and he was a he was both a guitarist and I think he was like a classical music major. Um, and he said like, funny, this is this this influence this this structure is influenced by Mozart, but I don't think Kurt Cobain would know. It. Um, but so that was heavy and alive and well like the early 2000s like velvet revolver anthrax um that was still alive and well but then i want to say right around the time i was in high school um that's when the quote-unquote indie rock took over from alt rock so alt rock was already a bit lighter 
Yeah. Gorillas, Incubus, um, bands like that, Rise Against, kind of angsty, the emo movement, of course, is popular and popular. And then, like, I just remember it's kind of ingrained in my psyche, like, Phoenix was kind of like the, one of the first Passion Pit. Yeah, 2009. yeah, 2009 was pretty, was pretty sick, honestly. I'm not gonna lie. That was my freshman year of high school. Um, oh, yeah, that would have been fun to be coming into all that. <laughs> Yeah, and I was I was such an angsty, like angry teenager at the time too. And um, I was like going to a Catholic high school, and I was supposed to be a quarterback, but I just did not get along with Trust Fund Baby. So I became I became <laughs> the person who was supposed to be like, you know, in the center, who became this out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember ingrained in my psyche that like 2011 when Foster the People came out. That's I feel like that's when indie became sort of indie rock, quote unquote, became supreme with the sound of rock. And it was so light, like there's nothing heavy about it. And um, Tool came out with an album in 2019, and it was almost alien at that point because everything yeah. had become so deconstruction and light. No one wanted to do hard rock anymore, at least not in the West. And mm. we're I mean, in the late 2010's Turnstile was like this this hardcore band, dancey hardcore band that I thought, like, oh, thank God, like, finally, like, I need some new training music. And even their latest album, 2021, which is very good, like, was departing from that harder sound into some more, like, lighter indie sounds. And I'm like, can we just please, like, please just have some kind of, like, pure hard rock that's accepted? And... Mm-hmm. I think, like a lot of those, a lot of the fans of Turnstile kind of just rejected the new album. And I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I was one of those people, but I, I was missing like the heaviness to it, the weight, um, the intensity, mm-hmm. the speed, and um, it's at a point now where like there are a number of people, especially in our circles, that are like, okay, like we need something concrete. Um, we need something that isn't so formulaic. We need something that isn't like bowing down to the god of deconstruction and in reason and saying look this can't be too aggressive or too oppressive it's like almost reminiscent of robespierre like switching up the churches in france when it comes to music so i find it i find it interesting that this has become like your wheelhouse lately um how long you you mentioned that you think it needs to be bottom up and i would certainly agree because back to the point of like grunge like grunge was a thing from like 1986, um, mm-hmm. that early on. Most people just think it started with Nirvana, but yeah, no, uh, Mud Honey was was around there. Uh, Mother Love Bone, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Mal- Malfunction, Soundgarden started in '86. Yeah, um, and that that was pretty organic coming out of Seattle. Um, what do you have any like guess as to when? localism when it comes to music will sort of reach a critical mass that will kind of change the music landscape away from this sort of bow down to deconstructionist um but not so deconstructionist formulaic pop music yeah yeah um no it's uh yeah no i i think you hit the nail on the head there with the talking about the, the origins of grunge being very organic um and how we sort of need something like that to happen again um there's obviously I, can, I couldn't pinpoint something, but I think it'll. Um, interestingly, I, I have a theory that it may end up coinciding with um, with a lot of new technology that we're seeing coming out, like with uh, with AI and with automation. Um, because when you look at when you look at times in history, going back, you know, maybe even all the way to the Greeks, um, 
historical like philosophy has really made a lot of breakthroughs at times when there were vast new amounts of capital being generated by the societies in which um, these philosophers were operating. Because I think people end up with a lot more free time. Like, say, you know, people are saying automation will take a bunch of people's jobs, and it's true, it will, and that's scary. But at the same time, you know, 10,000 people get lose their jobs, and that, that really sucks. But then that's 10,000 people who might be writing songs or thinking about ways to make the world better. Um, and, you know, I, th I think you saw that a lot in, in the 80s. Of course, you know, we had a massive technological overhaul coming in uh, post-1970s, so you were seeing a lot of more development of new capital. So it's really, time will only tell um, at what point something will organically rise to sort of challenge the status quo. But um, hopefully, of course, it'll come soon. And I agree with you generally that postmodernism is so deconstructive, destructive. It's built on like absurdism almost, um, questioning like everything, uh, tearing everything down to the point where you don't really have much to work with. And I think that even sort of thought in that sense kind of ebbs and flows between constructive and destructive cycles where people think about things and then tear it all down and reimagine something new. So I do hope for, for everyone's sake that we have reached that inflection point that we can really start to build things concrete um, from the ground up. And hopefully, hopefully it'll happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, that's an interesting point as to AI. I mean, AI is kind of scary in itself. At this it's point. terrifying, absolutely. <laughs> I'm certainly not, you know, opining on whether it's going to be a, a good or a bad thing. I think there's a lot of scary stuff to worry about out there. But uh, um, there's, you know, hopefully, ever the optimist, I guess, uh, maybe maybe some good will come of it too. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm generally optimistic about sort of political and cultural warfare in general because, um, you know, you read people who write works in times of crisis like centuries ago, and they have the same sentiments that we do. Like this is this is all very cyclical. Um, mm -hmm. They're like really worried about their country. They're really worried about their culture, and um, I mean. The, the the Carlisle great man theory really kind of does come into play. Like it, it, there is so much of a power vacuum right now. I mean, people may not kind of see that at face value um, because when we see sort of like great men, you know, quote unquote, we don't really have too many. Um, like, you know, Bezos, Gates, Fink, Blair, these are all pretty evil people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, I mean, they're all, at the same time, despite being really effective, they're almost, all, you look at all of them, they're all so absurdly spineless at their core. It's mm -hmm. like, it's true high-level, like, villainy. Like, the, the, more, the more villainous they get, the more strange they look. Like, you look at Bill Gates, you could just, like, you know, you could flick him and he'd fall over. You know, same thing with Tony mm -hmm. Blair. He just looks like a fucking cave goblin. <laughs> um, not, not, not so, like... Go down the trope of physiognomy because I'm kind of tired of hearing that on Instagram every five seconds. But I mean, it is, mm -hmm. it is, it is being proven. Um, I think, I think um, the more people sort of um, like Andreessen and more so Musk, who are kind of taking matters into their own hands and like shifting things in one fell swoop, like with Twitter. Like Twitter is the first like one fell swoop 
shift in the right direction that we've really seen um, that has not been undone, that is not, it's not backing down, and he has the, the power to do so. Um, I think more and more people emerge because you can only, the, the reason I was so skeptical of like the Great Reset, even Larry Fink talked about it not happening, it's just, it is so much to bite off and chew and, and actually swallow successfully, and, and hasn't, it hasn't been successful. And it's, it's just, it, you're trying to craft too much of a void, almost energetically. And, I mean, th this is mirrored in the music industry. This is mirrored in, um, you know, architecture. You look at postmodern architecture. It's like, yes, this is a, you know, a cinder block that we made into a building. And, uh, oh, glass. Yeah, glass. Lots of glass. Um, Lots of glass. The, the entire building is actually a window. Um, that's... <laughs> It's it's just way too much of a void for someone not to kind of step in and do something about things. And I think that's actually also the case with AI. Um, don't ask me how, because I'm not I'm not getting into the technicals of AI. But um, I don't I don't think I don't think we're in end times like a lot of you know evangelicals would like to believe. Seeing AI as the reason. No, and I, I tend to not find much credence behind those those beliefs. Yeah, it's, it's very much like seeing the roadside billboard saying, May 6th, 2011, <laughs> the world's going to end. And I was like, <laughs> Mayans had it right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, interesting. Oh, I better get my stuff in order then. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting point about AI. I mean, it's also very like Henry Hazlitt, Austrian School of Economics, when you're like, 10,000 jobs here, 10,000 people doing the same here. But it, it's true. Um, it's, it's become somewhat of a meme because it's true. Um, I mean, not, not to sort of get away from like, the cultural warfare aspect of this, but it is in, kind of an interesting question to ask, like, how long the West can go on without interacting with the material world? How long can the West go on without, you know, um, really getting the roots back into domestic manufacturing? Because... Yeah, I, I spoke about this with a couple other people, I forget who exactly, but um, had Britain not turned its back on domestic manufacturing, it may not be like the American client state that it is now. And mm -hmm. we're, we've, I mean, in the United States, we've signed off so much of our manufacturing to China, India, Indonesia. And I feel like COVID was such a black swan event to that, that notion that we're starting to see like a revival of American manufacturing. So... I'm wondering if, like, the rest of the West is going to follow suit and, like, really worrying about the material world. Because I think a symptom a symptom of postmodernism, and maybe something that also accelerated it for as long as it was being accelerated, was the fact that we we're interacting less and less with the material world. And I think that's also reached a breaking point. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the material world and in terms of culture, have you sort of broken this kind of broken... Have you kind of like taken that analysis of music and applied it to other aspects of like what makes up a culture? Like, is that something that's been on your mind? Um, only, only so far in the sense that it um, sort of pertains to regional identity or local identity. Um, like, I think you know, I hate to, to keep going back to the same dead horse, but uh, the grunge movement, of course, is one that's very, very localistic um, originally very tied to local identity even slowly seattleites now grunge really hasn't uh existed in the 
in the true sense for gosh almost 25 30 years depending on whom you ask but um but people still still feel so strongly connected to it just by sort of being in that um in that in that area and i think the reason why grunge was so um so iconic so captivating and enthralling to to people from the pacific northwest was because it in, in a strange way it almost embraced like american folklore in a larger sense like uh <laughs> in some senses um grunge was almost like the sasquatch of music right it was this this wild sort of brutish thing with these guys who were like yelling with these guttural voices and when you heard it on and when you know you, you show that to somebody in like florida or texas or or new england i would have paid good money to see their reaction to it for the first time um so uh so yeah i think i think in a sense it embraced that like wild um portrayal of it and really turned it into this this very productive constructive like we said um art medium so i'd love to of course see that more embracing regional identity also you know i think potentially in the broader scope of um of america um whatever that that means to people um i talked I, I talked a lot about um you know sort of states feeling more distinct from one another especially in like policy You'll have to excuse me, by the way. I'm feeling a little sick right now. What a word. Yeah, so th that's sort of the idea that I've been working with for now is um, how do we how do we jumpstart that? And, and there really is no way to jumpstart it, like you said. Um, in some senses, it does kind of have to be organic. But uh, that could be potentially the way to, to really patch things up in the broader American sense, too. Uh, embracing regional ideas identities while also like acknowledging one another as part of a, a larger mosaic of of what it means to be american yeah I mean, <laughs> kind of guttural voice description of the ground is pretty fine like <laughs> <laughs> everyone i think everyone except kurt had that voice like eddie better lane staley yeah, yeah pretty much like that small like, I, I still can't get enough of it, if I'm being honest. But it no, is really, yeah. it is really, and I've never really heard that description for American folklore, but it makes sense like, where, it, where it comes from, like the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's just endless trees. I mean, it's absolutely stunning up there. I went. Gorgeous, I, yeah. It's unbelievable. I almost went about two years ago now, in May of 2021, during COVID, and it was still just incredible. I've um, done some hiking and camping up there, so I'll give you some spots if you if you ever go back. Oh, uh, do let me know. I'm, I'm trying to. Uh, I, I don't think I'll ever live there, but it's certainly a place I want to visit with uh, the misses. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot. It's a great place to retreat to, and think. Absolutely. But that, like, it's it's darker weather up there. You know, you have to dress warmly. You know, there's quite there's still lumberjacks up there. Mm -hmm. Essence really did become a sound. And I can't really remember, like, the, the, the last time we've seen that. Like, the Los Angeles sort of quote-unquote indie scene with, like, um, Foster the People and groups surrounding, like, that. I remember auditioning for drama schools in Los Angeles in 2012 and just, like, feeling like there's something different happening here now that isn't just Los Angeles. Like, Los Angeles is giving birth to something. Mm -hmm. That's something I can really... And, 
There, there's a lot of hardcore punk fans that come out of Baltimore because Baltimore's it's even worse than Oakland, which is a very, very <clears throat> wrong thing to say. Aggressive, it's fast-paced, like, you need to survive. Um, it's, and their music can literally be just, like, title fight, turnstile. They can all be described as just fast-paced and violent. And that really does describe the ethos of Baltimore. Um, you know, a year and two, three months later since we recorded, you know, you described yourself as a staunch localist. And um, how much of that descriptor is still accurate? Like, are you still, have you doubled down on that or have you kind of shifted in some ways? Uh, yeah, I would say uh, um, definitely. I've, I think I've espoused some of those, those ideas um, coming out. So I think it shouldn't come as a, a huge shock to anyone listening that I still um, align pretty strongly with that. Um, you know, I've certainly, you know, engaged in some some pretty enlightening uh, discussion about it. Um, definitely gained some new ideas. So I guess you could say I'm not exactly the same person I was uh, with regards to that. But I do believe that a lot of meaningful movements start uh, start small and sort of work out from there. Uh, you know, the Renaissance started in Florence. Uh, even that, even that, that couldn't overcome this sort of localist urge. Um, so yeah, I would say I would say. To most extent, I've sort of, I guess, maybe evolved in what I could see it becoming. But for the most part, I think that whatever constructive movement there is, I haven't done too much thought about what sort of um, what sort of circumstances um, facilitate more deconstructive movements. I don't know if that's also a local thing or if that happens from the top down. Maybe that's worth looking into. If constructive is from the bottom up, it then is destructive from the top down. Maybe that's maybe that's something I could do a piece on eventually. Um, definitely, there's just so much to explore. I feel like every day I read something new or I have these true thoughts and I realize like, it's really like Dunning-Kruger effect, like one step forward, 20 steps back, I realize how much more I don't know, how much more is still out there to explore, or how many other great thoughts people have had that I may never get to see. Um, it's beautiful and scary in a sense. But uh, yeah, that's sort of where I'm at now. Yeah, I mean, that's not last, but I'd say it's pretty accurate. I mean, personally, like, now that I'm no longer... I mean, when you, when you and I last spoke, I was still like, yeah, I'm going to be a monk after my fight career. We're like, there's like, like there can only be so many world champions, so I have to pick bros with the boys, man. Um... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I I cared far less about like global landscape and like generational issues because I was like, yep, uh, world champion fighter, uh, monk, you know, mm. books from a monastery, and then uh, I'm out. See ya. And now that I'm <laughs> and now that I'm gonna be having children and the grandchildren, great grandchildren, like, oh, okay, I really care now. And mm. um, I mean, coming from you know being an American, right, but also caring about the health of Europe. Um, these are these are things that I feel like like you said I feel like every day I learn something new it's like wait hang on um, I always start with faith um, but I know downstream from faith is like a number of, of of issues that plague us each and every single day culturally politically artistically um, militarily economically so on and so forth so it's like I feel like the more I learn like the more I can map out but in each little piece 
that I'm establishing this map with, like there's so many little subtleties and intricacies that can go wrong or go right that you didn't even see coming. So um, mm. I just found myself like reading, reading more and more and more. Like it's, it's a bit absurd, like reading Hampson and Clausewitz and Gogol and um, Nietzsche and uh, like kind of all and Carlyle. And I, I still haven't read Bronze Age Mindset. So I'm reading that now too, just because. You know, for the dissident culture, just to understand what it stands. But um, it's it is it is very exciting. Like personally, it's 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 super enjoyable to engage in. But then it, it kind of does become scary and scary because there is brass tacks at hand. Like there is the material world to deal with. There is the energy crisis. There is um, immigration crises. There is um, you know the the re the regrouping agenda of globalism at hand that really took a blow with COVID it, it certainly didn't go the way they planned. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say um, things, I mean, and this is something I've noticed like for a while, and this is sort of truths in combat that I've seen. Um, most truths are bi-directional. Um, maybe it's, the truth happens more in one direction than the other. Maybe it's not equal. I, 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 where I stand right now, I think top down has more effect than bottom up. But mm. to say that bottom up doesn't have um, a force to it is is pretty nonsensical. Um, like political decisions do influence culture. Like communism influences culture. They have a top down policy, a brutalist architecture that we're still dealing with today. It's a nightmare. Um, but in reaction to political, like the Soviet Union is always a great example, like in reaction to the policies of the Soviet Union, you have the, you have art and text that came that is transcendent and generational and ultimately the Achilles heel of communism, like works by people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn and Ivan Brunin and in some ways Boris Pasternak and it's, that reaction cannot be controlled. It's simply because you, you would have to manage the reaction of every single individual or every single community, and it's just logistically impossible. Um, so I, I think if localism is going to have an impact on, if localism is going to have an impact on sort of uh, how top down conducts itself, it's has to be some kind of organization amongst communities that is decentralized, which is very difficult to manage. But I think, I think psychologically, that's where a lot of things are going. Like Web three is reflecting that. Um, earlier, your point about local shows being the most fun, I have to agree. Um, <laughs> like I think the maybe not the best show I've been to, but. Um, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club did a show of the film War in San Francisco in 2018. That was still to this day the best show I've been to. Um, they're like they, they tour nationally, right? So if you're mm -hmm. if you know Roadhouse music, you know you know kind of like blues punk crossover. You know them. They're a great band. Um, but they were from they're from the Bay Area, so they had like a very special kind of like they, they even did like a speech like yeah we grew up going to Fremont High and. We stood there when we saw PJ Harvey, and we stood there when we saw Nine Inch Nails, and we saw, stood there when we saw the Jesus Fairy Chain. And they had this um, they had this power duo, because they live in Los Angeles now, but they had this power duo called Restaurant from Los Angeles. And that, you could tell, they were those two, that power duo and that band, were crafted 
by like the scenes that they bounce around in in towns around the Los Angeles area, and mm-hmm. that felt like I was actually interacting. Like you said, I was interacting with something that I was a part of, as opposed to like I I'm seeing I don't know like ACDC or like, yeah. I, saw, I saw the gorillas at the Bill Graham Civic in San Francisco, and like Danny Brown and Vince Staples were the openers, and there was this massive spectacle, and I was like, wow. Yeah, it, it 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 was it was great to see, but I didn't feel like I was interacting with it. To your point, mm-hmm. um, so I think I think you're right um, in terms of in terms of localism being kind of the way forward of where we're going to see sort of new cultural revolutions that would be really refreshing. Um, so what ex- I mean, I got had the privilege of doing a voiceover for you for the Border Force um, Operation Lone Star. Um, with Greg, and actually, one of the one of the guys I coach in anti fragile fitness is actually part of an o- Operation Lone Star. Um, so shout out to you, Cooper Miller. I know you're listening to this. Uh, that's literally you, as he always says. Um, you know, when I came, when that reel came out, he's like, "That's literally me, coach." I'm like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> um, but do you think? Um, how do you think this sort of new shift towards the states um, holding? more power in dictating policy and a Supreme Court that looks like they're willing to support that shift. What do you think is sort of the landscape for America culturally and economically like within the next 30 years because of that? Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I can think of, you know, a, a couple ways that it, that it could potentially end out. I also wonder if it has something, if it had some sort of play on this, this whole um, spectacle recently uh, with the with the whole Speaker of the House crisis. Um, I think you know, sort of the a, a smaller group of people, though certainly a non-negligible group of people, realized that they had a lot of um, power to 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 make their um, constituents' needs sort of to force this uh, this one unifying Speaker to adapt so many. Um, so many of their policy points. It was a. Uh, it's really crazy to see. I wonder what would have ended up happening um, if McCarthy had chosen to hold out even longer. Um, at what point um, it would have just become unsustainable. But uh, nonetheless, we have a situation. A lot of the um, a lot of the desires of the Freedom Caucus have now come through. So uh, that could certainly shape things. But uh, generally, yet. Yeah, I think that you know maybe maybe we do end up sort of uh, going the way of Europe and creating these very um, these very distinct sort of tribalistic groups based off of where you're from. Like you know you got your Californians; they believe in one thing. They feel you know completely and fully distinct from the Texans who are born in Texas. You know, like eight generations believe in something entirely different. Um, that's, you know, the furthest possible iteration without any sort of reconciliation. The question, I guess, is if the, uh, is if the federal model is able to, to accommodate the wills, the very unique and conflicting, even, you know, diametrically opposed wills of the different states. It's really going to put to test the, uh, the vision that the founding fathers had of having this bicameral legislature, of having this, excuse me, uh, House of Representatives, having all these checks and balances, were supposed to be there with the, with the idea of representing 
the different wills of the people at different times, hopefully as uh, proportional to what they actually are as uh, as possible. So, you know, I think I think what ends up happening if we reconcile and go back to the status quo or if we take this this pretty dramatic turn and become very become, you know, more associated with states than even with the national government, I think it's going to be dependent on how our federal government can handle these things going forward. I mean, the federal government, it seems to me, has like become less and less competent with each administration. Um, I think a lot of people will get upset. I mean, if I say with each administration, everyone's going to get upset at me for saying that. But it's, you know, it's just, I was watching a speech from like T Tony Blair in 2003, like speaking to Congress and just like l taking one look at Congress. It still looked quite stout. It still looked effective, even if the policies that they were putting forward were massively destructive for the nation. Like there was mm -hmm. competence there. Like they knew what they were doing. And if you look yeah. at Congress now, it just looks, in essence, and maybe physiognomy. We're going to get back that then down that trope. It just looks increasingly like less capable. Um, are there any p political operators on your radar domestically that you think will kind of ascend to be stars who have the competence, who have the charisma, um, to be like this Caesarian figure that maybe not necessarily because. I've had some people argue with me that, like, we're going to balkanize. And I said, absolutely not. Like, I do not. With the way the military-industrial complex is, is structured, that's not going to happen. No, yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's such a, it's such a like, homesteader, gunslinger trope. Like, yeah, I'm just ready. Like, come to sure Some people are hoping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they can finally live out their, uh, their fantasies. But <laughs> I don't see it happening. Yeah, their Mad Max dream. Like, they were, they were yeah. felt so justified in 2020 and 2021. It's like, see, I told you, it's coming down to a headway, and now it's not a case at all. No. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I kind of argued cyclically, like, the next step after dystopian managerialism is fascism. And I don't know if, like, <laughs> I don't think this country could be fascist. Um, there's two mm. balances, unless some crazy black swan event happened where someone could seize power in such a way. But I do think that like someone is going to, or a group of people are going to need to emerge to kind of put this Weimar state to an end. Like it, it just feels in essence that that's demanded. Um, is there, are there, I mean, you would know you're, you're more up close to this than I am. Um, but is there anyone your radar who you think, or any group of people that you think could be, such a figure, such a group. Well, you know, of course I could go with the uh, answer that I feel like most people are thinking when you bring up that description and say Ron DeSantis, um, sort of like a very eloquent speaker. He had that whole photo op after winning the governorship with, you know, him and his wife and his three kids in front of the big American flag. And that was a, that was a big moment. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays out. I think, the Trump DeSantis thing, if it ends up coming to a head that the, the way um, people are forecasting will, will really reveal a lot of the values, the things we prioritize. Like, you know, Trump is like a very, um, Trump certainly has a charisma and in a very different way than DeSantis does. He's very uh, almost evangelizing. Like, he can, uh, 
can really sort of draw people to a cause. He's very good at, you know, getting people up and riled up and ready to go for the causes that he supports. Whereas DeSantis is, you know, uh, well-spoken and very eloquent, sort of the, the statesmanly conventional kind of build that uh, a lot of people have been saying we need. So that'll be interesting. Um, I could see, for the Democrats, I could see Mark Kelly from Arizona rising up the ranks um, pretty quickly, just because I think he's um, he has like the, the military background that um, that could certainly help him out. He's a um, I've heard him speak. He's fairly well spoken. Um, seems to be good so far at compromising. And one thing he did, which I uh, did like, was actually putting his uh, his savings in a blind trust. You know, not using the offense to sort of make these stock trades that you're seeing all the time. Um, but yeah, no, I think. Um, I think these next two years are going to be very, very formative for not just who, what the matchup is for 2024, but actually the archetypes that uh, that uh, people are going to be putting forward. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like on both sides that you mentioned, like they're very together candidates. Like they're candidates reminiscent of like quite a long time ago, um, and it's it's. I mean, I think Trump was like the. I mean, actually, maybe, maybe Biden. I you can depends on how you look at things. Like Trump, DeSantis would never have been able to succeed in the landscape of twenty sixteen. Mm. Uh, like quote unquote boomer truth regime was like so gridlocked. It was so bad. Mm. I was having a discussion with someone from church yesterday and. Kind of talking about like, yeah, remember, remember like hipster indie culture from like two thousand six, like MySpace to like 2014 about like those like eight years of like 2014 was like the last wonderland dreamland year until trump kind of announced in 2015 and ruptured and then things got pretty real um he was addressing issues that a bunch of people either were completely unaware of or people were screaming about but weren't being heard or people were just completely turning a blind eye knowing that that was the case and um, I think like Trump needed to be Trump. He needed to be like this. It's quite literally like will not explain meme. Like yes, Chad, but it's almost like buffoonish and absurdist at the same time. Yet saying the truth, it's like well you can't say that because the ACLU and the <laughs> the ADL and like name every acronym that you want. And he's like no, that's fine. I don't care. And that singular force um, was enough to arouse a nation and to rupture like this, this truth regime, this, this 1984 style, like, you can't say that type of thing. And they tried doubling down on that in 2020. And <laughs> I mean, like, they had a South American style election, you know, in 2020 and mm. to get him out. Um, and so I feel like maybe Biden, you could argue that Biden or Trump is the last deconstruction president. Um, I think they they have all been since FDR, except like maybe Kennedy and Reagan. But Reagan kind of turned into that after he got shot, so he didn't really have much time um, within his presidency. Um, well, this is something I tell a lot of people who are like a lot of like my dad's a big like Reaganomics fan because he. You know, he he took a startup public in the '80s and was living oh, in, in New York City. Good. So it's like, 
you know, Reagan was like, oh, what a guy, you know. Um, <laughs> and I certainly get the appeal, but I remind people that Ronald Reagan is the reason you can't sue a vaccination company. Um, so there's a lot more of meets the eye uh, with Ronald Reagan than a lot of people realize. But um, Trump had to be deconstructionist because what was being built was this, like, all-seeing eye super state. Uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership was, like, the big boogeyman at the time. And, um, and Biden, I mean, he doesn't even know where he is. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. Like, we know he's not running things. We also know, at the same time, a lot of things just aren't being run. Um, so, and, and DeSantis is has been has displayed his ability for governing a people better than anyone has mm. and I don't know how long to be honest um, before I don't know much about Mark Kelly um, I know that our camp is very big on Blake Masters in that neck of the woods uh, unfortunately some fortification uh, there as well um, do you like how how much do you think these these questions are getting more and more abstract as we're hashing this out? So my apologies for that. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's like yeah, you know, an acreon crystal ball this for me. Like, what do you see? <laughs> um, but I I mean, it, it it's worth bringing the question because like this almost kind of backs your bottom up policy in the sense that people are clamoring for an actual nation or a nation state they they don't whether it's people who are for from where i'm from in oakland who are saying like this state is fucked for completely different reasons but people in appalachia are saying this state is fucked the consensus is like people are not happy with the state of things and mm -hmm. It's 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 an anti-nation as opposed to a nation. So like these people that you're putting forth are people that seem to facilitate having an actual nation, actually governing a people. Um, what begs the question is like every time someone emerges like that, it just becomes like very globalist international policy at the expense of the of the people domestically. Um, how much do you think, like, someone like a DeSantis getting into the presidency, presidency is actually worth in this day and age? Is it just a figurehead, or is there actual merit to it still? Yeah, I, I really like your point about uh, the anti-nation thing, because it feels like everyone you talk to thinks that things suck for their side. Like, the only unifying factor you see, uh, the only thing that everyone can agree on is that things are bad for entirely different reasons, but I guess at least it's it's somewhere to start, right? Um, it's it's very interesting. I, I think that electing somebody um, like DeSantis may not in its in and of itself be, you know, this massive capitalist moment, but I think it could be um, it could be a sign of a of a larger sort of movement. I do think potentially that if if there were to be a downfall for, for liberal liberalism in the in the broader sense it would be the U.S. Um, sort of somewhat diverging from Europe. And I, and I mean that in the sense that culturally the values are kind of a little bit different um, in, in sort of minute ways, but also in somewhat larger ways. Like in uh, Europe, so many of the debates now with like um, with migrants coming in, you know, it's about preserving sort of the, the cultural heritage, which for them goes back, you know, 
countless thousands of years in in some cases, and that's you know very real. Um, it's a very real consideration for for people um, over there, and I've just you know being involved in some in some forums in the UK and say France, like hearing what values they prioritize when talking about social issues, it just feels so different. And I think uh, the reason that the US and Europe have been um, aligned for so long is mostly because the political goals are so similar. Uh, politically and economically, it's just advantageous to be together. But the question is at what point, how many events need to happen to the point where we start uh, looking at cultural value or cultural prioritization over those other goals. Uh, like America's, uh, to some extent, kind of a nation of immigrants, right? We don't have these as strong ties to, to you know, regional heritage yet. So focusing on building those things as opposed to preserving those things, that's an entirely different, um, it's an entirely different conflict to deal with this, entirely different policy-wise, even values-wise. Uh, you see the debate in, in a, here in America about immigration, it's about jobs more so than than culture. We're still looking at things through a very fiscal lens. Um, and so if there was to be somebody, a candidate, obviously we don't know what DeSantis's platform will fully be yet. I mean, we know the things he supports, but it really is a question of what he chooses to prioritize along the campaign trail, right? Um, if, he, if he does choose to prioritize some of this more cultural stuff about building a distinctive American culture, uh, hashing out some of these issues, um, it could be signs of a of a divergence from this very close sort of partnership we have with um, with Europe. So th those are just some of the things I'm I'm looking out for here, um, and it really it may not even have to be somebody from the Republican side. I don't know what the Democrat uh, <laughs> side of things looks like right now. I mean, it looks like Biden's planning on running again, and if that happens, then I mean, I don't think. I don't think the Democrats will put someone else up. I think it's Biden's stage. Um, then I guess it shifts to 26 for them, right? Um, so, yeah, in that sense, the moving part really is the Republicans. So that's where we kind of end up looking at. But I think it could happen from either side, potentially. Yeah, I mean, like the the Democrats keep quote unquote fortifying, but I know that I know like a, a little birdie told me that like that's the next thing the Supreme Court's going to go after. Um, like that, an affirmative action and immigration policy. It, those three things being shifted can completely shift the the direction of a nation. That is mm. still very massive, massive issues. Um, I, I I like your point about sort of like the divorce from Europe because I actually think that benefits. It definitely benefits Europe um, because I think globalism is recreating Europe and America's image, which is a massive mistake because calling for Europe to be more diverse is like calling for, you know, Africa or Asia to be more diverse. Like, we need we need more Dutch people in Japan. And we need, like, we need more Czech people in Zimbabwe. We just do. Um, and these are, these are ancestral homelands. This is like, that's an actual existential threat in Europe. Um, Klausowitz writes about immigration being a massive part of warfare. As soon as people understand that, then they know what's at stake. Um, I've hashed this out with both Thomas and Saxon Cross about culture uh, in the United States that they're like America is a propositional nation Thomas argues that like it is uh, a nation proposed by a people like this nation was originally Anglo and then 
um, the Ellis Island class, you know, kind of came in the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, Germans, uh, Italians, Irish, Polish, um, but, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a nation of settlers and immigrants, um, and, you know, they could have written in the Constitution this being a European nation, or this being an Anglo nation, but they didn't. And since this nation was founded on a set of principles, a set of documents, that's a big open question. And it's definitely less of an of an existential threat. It's more of like a like like kind of you said a threat of prosperity. Like the conversation is about jobs. The conversation is about economics. Um, and you know the cultures that are in America that have been solidified. I mean, Appalachian culture has been the same for hundreds of years. Um, the Northeast is still pretty waspy. You know. Um, Phillips Academy, Phillips Exeter, Hotchkiss, <laughs> um, and then like you know you have like the pockets of Ellis Island class people in Providence and Boston and New York and Philadelphia, like you and I were talking about before we hit the report button. Um, and the South, you know, the Saxon Cross is from Dixie. Dixie still has a culture that's there um, that it keeps threatening to die, but then doesn't die. Texas. <laughs> Um, old old San Francisco culture is something I talk about a lot, but it's like it died so fast because it's such a frontiersman culture. Radical things start in the Bay Area, whether it's radical in sports or radical in technology or radical in um, just the way one conducts themselves morally. You know, a lot of degeneracy has come out of the Bay Area. Um, my, a nice open question to think about is which cultures in the United States can be preserved and, and where does creation need to happen? Because um, I think, I, I would say in the majority of the nation, maybe in the cities, um, there's a stream I was listening to with Academic Agent, and I don't remember any of the American creators he's talking about, but it's a second stream about the American question. And he says, the subcultures you'll see in Maine versus the, like going down the eastern seaboard, Versus this are, are very different because Maine still has some French influence compared to just Massachusetts, even though Maine used to literally be a part of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. uh, then New York is, is very different from the mid-Atlantic region, like Charlotte and Richmond and D.C. And then, you know, Miami is, is basically Cuba. Um, but then the rest of Florida is not, you know, Florida, it's Florida. And... I mean, going to the Eastern Seaboard, there's so many subcultures that are still really well intact that I feel like people, I don't know, maybe they just don't really appreciate or fully understand how fleshed out those are and need to be preserved. Um, I think as you go further west, though, that becomes more of a need for creation. I don't know what the hell is going to happen to California. Like, <laughs> um, a lot of my writing is kind of like mourning in old San Francisco that I can kind of feel an essence of certain places that but that literally died before I was even born. Um, like North Beach is in a, it was a formerly Italian and Basque neighborhood. Now it's just Italian. Um, and that's all of my mother's heritage right there is Italian and Basque. And um, a lot of people are leaving. California is sort of under Uncle Gavin. is like the epicenter of anti-culture between big tech and between the policies coming out of that state just completely dehumanizing people in every single way um i think even a lot of people you know 
who are from like the South and from the Midwest tell me, yeah, California's fucked for like a hundred years, man. I'm like, is it though? Because it feels like there's a breaking point there too where culture needs to be established because if there's anywhere that demonstrates American anti-culture, it is California. Um, you know, we've three, you and I have talked about, and you have posted ad nauseum about gardens and localism um, <laughs> and social capital. Because I think, I think your kind of crowning work has been talking about social capital. And, and I actually want to pair this as somewhat of like a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek question uh, for you, but um, I think it actually is relevant. Um, how dire is the need for social capital? How can one go about creating it as an individual influencing his community and maybe his state? And how serious does one need to take himself <laughs> in order to do that? Um, I mean, to answer your first question, Barry, <laughs> um, to, to give a one-word answer there, um, of course, you know, having social capital really is the, the baseline need for fostering these these communities that ultimately spring outward and create positive constructive movements and yeah uh, on some level you know i think that is one of the things that we most struggle with because people people interact so much with news and movements on the national level and struggle so much to kind of fit in and feel like they're actually impacting things whereas localist movements there's just so much more opportunity simply for for creating this impact um and yeah like you said i have really talked ad nauseum about this about you know community gardens and whatnot it just you really it, it requires almost like an understanding of what other people feel uh it's people we're a social species and in some senses that set us apart um it's been the reason we um been able to survive and prosper for so long is this sort of need to, to to reach out to one another to 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 build something more than ourselves to leave things for for future generations uh, leaving the world a better place than than we found it you know i think if we were a selfish or a unsocial species you just took whatever we could um and didn't care about what we left i think we'd obviously be in a much worse place so at least to leave on an optimistic note i think this may have to be my last question unfortunately i have uh, some dinner plans i got to get to but um to sort of leave on an optimistic note i think that uh, the answer can be found in why we've survived for this long think about other people think about how you felt the need how you wanted someone to reach out to you and just be that person People are so naturally friendly when, when you get down to it on a very one-to-one -one level, ignoring all this stuff about equating politics with values, about you know seeing people as so much more and all this absurdism and destructive stuff about uh, ideas. And just look at look at your person, you know, man to man, woman to woman, whatever else, um, and just I don't know, uh, build the trust from there, make that move run for local council, build the gardens, uh, everything else, you know. And then how serious, I'm going to keep pressing this, how serious does one need to take himself to do so? I probably, uh, maybe not as much as you might think. Um, some, yeah, I, I in some sense. People take themselves seriously, which I get a giggle out of. Sorry? I mean, 
I know you hate people taking themselves too seriously, which I got a giggle out of. Yeah. I was going to that with my, like, my name being blood and red, so I was going <laughs> to Yeah, so we've gone back and forth on that. Uh, no, it's true, you know, um, in some sense it does require kind of stripping yourself down, being vulnerable, uh, maybe, you know, uh, you know, making fun of your faults from time to time. You know, it's it's a way to, to endear yourself to others, to to build that trust, you know, letting people see a, a more vulnerable side of yourself that's maybe not this perfect image that you feel this need to project. So, yeah, I think talking about not taking yourself so seriously, of course, there is some seriousness in this. We're dealing with, you know, the souls of our communities, so it's not something to to scoff at, but in the in the more micro sense of, of dealing with these personal interactions it does require stripping yourself down in a sense and um <clears throat> excuse me oh um <laughs> creating really working to create something more than yourself i i really like that answer because it's like it's taking your it's like yeah you are an individual and you are needed to make this move happen but it really at the end of the day isn't about you like you take yourself out of it there's humility there there's a lack of pride there's a lack of self-hatred so lack of being, you know, up yourself because there's a task at hand that needs to be needs to be done. Um, I think that I actually really do believe that is the right answer, honestly. Um, not that I was, <laughs> not that I was asking <laughs> like, like a, here's a test in Acria. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the essence people need to have in their sort of daily duty of uh, rebuilding social capital wherever they may be. Uh, hmm. It was great. Uh, it was great having you back, oh, man. Thank you so much for doing this again. No, thank you. So. We we definitely have to do this again sometime soon. We'll we'll set this up again. Yeah, yeah. I remember you know end of twenty twenty one was like yeah quarterly political correspondent. I'm like yeah, and then twenty twenty two happened. We're both like oh yeah. hey, it's been seven months. Yeah, what's up? Yeah, see you later. <laughs> well, yeah, I have to do this. Now that we're out of the woods, there. Hopefully, this can become a more regular thing. Yeah, I, th I think it should honestly. Um, I appreciate. Uh, before we go, how can people find you on which platform? Um, well, right now, mostly Instagram, um, totally not an Acreon backup account in case, God forbid, something happened is uh, totally an Acreon. Um, got the links all in there through the Instagram bio for other things. Might be starting to Twitter soon. Who knows? Uh, we'll see how that goes. But uh, for now, that's that's where I'm operating. Wait, weren't you already on Twitter? Yes. I, I So I have the Twitter account. I just really haven't done much to, to, to sort of work towards building it. I need a deeper understanding of how those algorithms work before I venture out. Copy that. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, everyone give uh, an actor and a follow on all three of those platforms. I think you'll get some good looks on each of them, to be honest. Uh, and as always, God bless, good storms, good night. Thank you.